Mojo. Ah, yes, here it is. Got your mojo working. Pizzazz, oomph, zest, passion, energy, vibe. ACDC, the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, that can't be right. I got my mojo working. Hey everybody and welcome to another edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have your company. Thank you for hitting the download button. We appreciate your spending some time with our little program, which is all about finding interesting people. And so we've got a couple of people to talk to who have their mojo working in some aspect of their life, in or out of work, or... They just have a great story to tell, and we can take inspiration from their story, which is the back half of today's show. Driving the big red bus, we call the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo, welcome to this week's show, mate. G'day, how are you going? Good, it's been a lot going on. Mm, there has indeed. It's been uh, it's been a busy couple of weeks, actually. Yes, and as we head into the end of season five, mm. uh, already starting to book. And in fact, it's interesting. We're already starting to book gigs and recorded gigs for season six, which is going to be a cracker. Uh, but this week's guest, and I love this, this week's guest came as a contact from a fan of the show who said you should speak to Jessica uh, on your show. So I love that when people get in touch with us. It's actually the rewarding part of this, isn't it? When people reach out and go, hey, you know, you should talk to such and such or I love the show or even better, have some beer. Well, that's what Christina did. Christina, who, who knows me and knows the show, said you should speak to Jessica. And then the, <laughs> the other bit we had during the week is... We got Stan Peake got in touch, who, the legend from Canada, who's a top bloke, who mm, was a uh, very popular show <laughs> earlier. I think it was early season five we had Stan on. And he rang and said, got a new book, can I come and talk about it? So Stan will be on the show shortly. And then Brian Falchuk got in, in touch during the week. The uh, the Brianator, the Brianator, <laughs> and uh, he has put us in touch with an incredible lady uh, who's got an amazing story to tell as well. So, I think all in all, we've got a great lineup today, but we've got some terrific interviews coming up into the future as we roll into season six. If you're a long term listener, thank you for hanging in there with us. If you're new to the show, welcome. Good to have you here. Let's uh, let's get something done. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show. So this week's show, you're going to love, mate. It's all about food. <laughs> mate, I'm there. I'm there. I've got the, got, the, got the platter in front of me as we speak, actually. Now, Jessica Cons runs a, a, it's an app called Crave. Now, you'll love this too. It's described as Tinder for food. Ooh. I like that. You love your, you love your Tinder. Well, and I love, you love my Tinder food. and I love my food. <laughs> Two together. Beautiful. Perfect. So this is a young lady who started, it's a terrific story. She started an Instagram page and she would go around in Newcastle, which is on the eastern coastline here in Australia. She would go to her favourite food spots and take lovely photos of the food and post them. And... A couple of restaurants rang her and said, we love what you do. Will you come and help us with our social media? That ended up becoming an advertising agency, which she ran to help people with their socials, predominantly around the food industry. And then what came from that is she created this app where you basically swipe through visual representations, like beautiful photography, of a restaurant's menu. So before you go there, you can kind of check out what the menu looks Ooh, like. Ooh, nice. Yeah, which I think is really good because you want that, right? And mm. and the second part is that 
it's now developed. Crave, the app, has now developed into an app where you can also get special offers and that sort of stuff. So it's just a really good story. I just love what Jessica has done. This is kind of a show which is a bit of a getting after it as well as just a great story because this started as a hobby, solved the problem, and has now turned into a thing. And apparently she is heading to Silicon Valley to get some funding to take this global. So with all that said, Jessica, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have a female influence on the show for a change, Gaz. It's been a bit (laughs) male-dominated for the last couple of months. It has been, hasn't it? Yeah, bit of a female voice. Maybe that's why no one's listening. <laughs> Quite possibly. Hopefully, I can help increase the, the reviewers. <laughs> except, except your mum. Hello to Robbo's mum. Yeah, well, um, she's always listening. And she left us, left us a lovely review on iTunes as yeah. well. That and, show was so well produced. And signed Robbo's mum. That's right. And sent us a beautiful sponge cake to go with it. Oh, how good is that? Was it gluten free? Yeah, of course. Um, anyway, yeah. we digress. Jess, we've been put in touch by our mutual buddy and, and super connector, Christine. Um, yes. When people meet you, and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Um, uh, I think it, it's a, when it comes to the app, it, but usually the tagline that captures people most is that I've created an app that's like Tinder for food. kind of sums it up really nicely in one sentence and a lot of people can connect to it and be like, oh, that's a great idea. And then I start to, you know, diverge into more of the, the business behind it and the, the team that work with us and the impact that it actually does have. So, yeah, that's kind of a good way to introduce it. You know, it's funny when you said that Robbo leaned forward because you mentioned two of his favourite things, Tinder <laughs> and food. Yep, yep, that's usually the reaction that I get. In the one sentence. Um, so if that's the case, tell us about Crave. Crave is what you do and it's Tinder for food. How do you mean? Why Why is that the case? Um, well, <clears throat> to begin with, uh, like to get, to get a bit of context on how it all started off, we have an Instagram page in Newcastle called Crave Newcastle, which promotes cafes and restaurants in the area. And it, it has over 50,000 followers as that audience reach. And I, I think we tapped into a market of people that really loved discovering food in a visual way through the Instagram. And the idea of the app kind of came as an extension of that where we were like, how can we make this more um, engaging and even more fun and have it an experience that's personalised to each individual user as well. So that's where these ideas started to come together with, you know, swiping left and right through photos of dishes like Tinder has and that fun kind of interface that it does have. And then idea after idea came together into being an app that people can actually use now. So and I think when people hear that first initial line, they're like, oh, like you said, two of my favourite things in one sentence <laughs> and then a product that we can actually use. It's a great way to hook people in to be able to visualise what it is without even having to see it. So Crave's an app. I open the app and there is a cafe or a restaurant that I'm interested in going to. Do I then click on that restaurant and basically swipe left or right to go through their menu and look at their menu visually through beautiful photography? Is that right? Well, you've summed it up very well. Um, I think that to, to give a bit more of an explanation around the individual user preferences, we have discovery settings that you can initially set, like let's say, for example, you're a vegan and you want to find somewhere within five kilometres radius, you just go through and put in individual settings depending on what you feel like and that's how the dishes are filtered to you. So it is you literally like put those settings in then you're swiping left and right through each individual dish. If you like the look of it, then you swipe right and you can tap in and find out 
them where it's from, but it is. It's like a menu that you can see from all the best cafes and restaurants around you. But another great thing about the app is that we work with each individual business to be able to provide an exclusive offer through Crave as well. So a lot of the customers that use the app um, really love it for the offers that they can claim. So, for example, there's some amazing offers like 20% off the bill, two-for-one dishes, lots of incentives to make someone want to go there as well. So, yeah, it's got a lot of perks to the app as well as just being able to discover food in a really visual way. Have you always been a foodie? Like, it just... I think what's interesting about this that caught my attention, having having used Crave and gone through the app, yeah, is that it seems that you've had this interest in hospitality for quite a while. Have you always loved food and cafes and restaurants? Like, is that can you can you remember a time back in the day, back in your childhood, where you knew that's what you wanted to do? Uh, definitely, I've always been a the definition of what a foodie is, like I'd take photos of my food before anyone ate it and, and post it to Instagram. I'm that classic person. Um, I did it before they did it. Their food until, until I did it photo. before it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But my background <laughs> hospitality. So I've worked in hospitality since I, you know, could work in, a, in hospitality. So since I was 14, I'm 25 now. So my background has always been in hospitality industry. And I think for me to be able to create a product that I genuinely love to use, that was what the most exciting part of it was, where it's like, you know, I know people can already have a visual experience through now Instagram, which is a great platform for cafes and restaurants. But I was like, how can I make this turn into a product that's that's even more valuable where we are actually giving offers and you can personalize it. And for me, it was like, how can I create a product that I personally would just absolutely love to use? So what was the starting point? So you were an Instagram user yourself and obviously yes. you were taking photos of your food way before mm. it became cool to do so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and did you then have your own personal account, but you had this interest and desire to share it with others. So you created Crave, started using Insta, got a following, then commercialised it. Was that the journey? Yeah, it, it was pretty much, that's pretty much bang on. It was it was this Instagram page that I had was just my personal one at first where I'd post photos of my food. And it's actually a friend that said to me, they're like, oh, you're that person that posts so much photos of food. Have you thought about creating your own account <laughs> that if people want to see those photos, they can just choose to follow it? And I was just like, you, I, I, I could tell that it was more of out of frustration for them having to constantly see photos of my food. But um, yeah, I, I decided to start up this Instagram page where it, it did showcase just the food in Newcastle. And if people wanted to follow it, they would follow it. And as soon as we hit 10,000 followers, Newcastle's like a small big town where people talk about accounts like that. They talk about things that are trending, places that are popping up and Crave started to become this go-to platform for where, you know, where's new that's just popped up. What does it look like? What's the food look like? We should we go check it out? And then from there, we started kind of almost getting this cult following of people that just relied on Crave as that information source. So from there to launch the app off the back of an Instagram page that has such a big following was a really nice funnel from people to be like, hey, I already love Crave. Now they're doing this. Let's jump on board with that too. But it did start, it turned into, I guess, an official business when from the Instagram page, we started getting approached by cafes and restaurants to help them do what we'd done with Instagram as well. So be able to create beautiful content for their pages, manage their social media accounts. And that's where it kind of started becoming an actual 
business. And that's probably where I want to go with this, just for, for put on the indicator of the big red bus just for a second and yep. take the off-ramp. Um, had, at, at what point did you commercialise it? Like you're obviously making money from it because you now have a team of staff that are obviously not doing it for nothing. So <laughs> yeah. you've been able to create a revenue stream. Where does the revenue come from and at what yeah. point did you make the decision that this has gone from just an interest in me taking photos of food into I'm going to go full on, full gas into this and make it a career that I can get paid for? How did that yeah. work out? Well, it was, the, I would say to take it back to the first ever client that approached us, is a cafe that I worked with in Newcastle. We were doing a feature with them and actually ended up being an experience that wasn't um, as great as usually they are. It is a place that has just opened up and they had a few teething issues and instead of publicly reviewing them or, or featuring them in a negative light, I ended up contacting the owner just to give some, some internal feedback. And from the back of that, you know, grew into a really positive relationship around him saying like, we know we need help in terms of like advertising and social media management. Would you guys do that for us. And it started growing from when I, you know, first hired a professional photographer because I realized we were starting to get booked for shoots from people that wanted to, to manage their social media accounts and, you know, help them with all of these services. There was obviously a gap in the market for especially in Newcastle, an agency that specialized in food photography and um, could create a following like we had on Crave. And from there, it was just, yeah, word of mouth of people saying like, you know, who looks after the social media for this account? Um, it's amazing. Can you do the same for us? And it just started really organically growing. But we grew from a team of, you know, three to 12 months later having, you know, eight. And it just started growing really organically from, I guess, the the gap in the market that was in Newcastle, which is, you know, in Melbourne and Sydney, it's, it's so common to have a business outsource their social media management and have professional content. But I think it was just, it, we hadn't quite caught up in Newcastle yet. And now it's becoming a lot more, um, I guess, familiar for people to know that that's something that you can do. You can outsource your social media because, you know, a lot of operators that are in hospitality, their expertise is not social media and it's not photography. And, and, you know, you might have an amazing business, but you still have to, you know, promote it online. And if that's not your skill, that's, that's where you can tap into services like what we offer through Crave. So when, when you talk about that, Jess, and it's something I've heard you mention before in interviews, how does a company become Instagrammable? Because there are people who just post stuff and they expect it to happen. We're probably a classic example of that right here in the studio. But um, how how does a business become Instagrammable? Well, I think it depends on what you think that definition is. Like if if a place has, um, you know, really – photogenic dishes and, you know, um, you, you want to, there's places in Melbourne, for example, where their menus are actually built off dishes that look good and look better than what they actually taste because they know people are going to be taking photos of them. Whereas I think, um, so, so that by definition would be like, you know, you look at a dish and you're like, oh my God, that looks so good. I have to take a photo of it. That's one box ticked for an Instagrammable business is that your food actually looks good. Another big thing is just having a business that has good lighting. Like we've been to places where we want to take photos and the dishes look great, but the lighting's terrible. So you can never make it look good. There's so many things to consider to make people want to be able to take photos of your business. But also I think, um, as, as picking up on the, the food trends, like, for example, the first people that decided to do acai bowls and smash avocado on toast, like, and then all of a sudden everyone wanted to do it. So mm. those kind of um, 
being on board with those trends and tapping into those for other people do. And I mean like freak shakes, all of those things that become Instagram trends, if you're the business that's doing it, then you're leading that game. So we always to try grow, and keep our finger on the pulse for that. To, and to grow a following, Jess, how much is timing and how much is um, actual skill? I think that it has to be it has to be um, targeted to people that are actually interested in in that kind of content. So if you just expect that you're going to get, you know, 100,000 followers overnight by by, you know, trying to trying to just post organically, unfortunately it's it's like not doesn't work like that anymore with the algorithms. Like Facebook obviously on Instagram and the algorithms are the same when it comes to your reach on organic posts, which is usually about less than 6% now as opposed to actually sponsoring content. So unfortunately now with Facebook and Instagram, you kind of have to pay to play. So if you're not sponsoring content or running competitions and trying to increase your followers, it's almost impossible. Like you just have to rely on the fact that um, people will stumble upon you, which is, you know, such a heavy competition online now that chances are quite slim for that. So you really do have to um, pay for that advertising, which in saying that it's cheaper than, you know, traditional advertising anyway. Mm. I think Facebook and Instagram is very affordable for any business owner to be able to, you know, sponsor posts and run competitions and, and I think Facebook and Instagram definitely own that market now. You're right. It is really um, affordable, but yeah. what's what's a reasonable amount to spend a month on this sort of thing? Yeah, we get that question a lot. And I think it depends on um, what kind of business you have. So for example, if you're a business that's e-commerce and you can sell products online, let's say you, you know, spend $200 on a Facebook ad and you sell, um, you know, 10,000 t-shirts because of it. That return on investment is so high because you can see the direct trackable link from Facebook ad being set up to people actually purchasing a product. But for a lot of businesses that we work with that don't have a physical product to sell online, a lot of it's just about brand awareness. So you set up an ad, um, you know, let's say 10,000 people are reached because of that ad, but the people that actually then come in afterwards, it's really hard to track them. So I think it just depends on... um, Starting with a you know a budget of say two hundred dollars a month to start sponsoring some posts and setting up campaigns like page like campaigns to brand awareness, and then you actually being able to review afterwards the reach and whether or not you see that as a return on investment. I think that's a good starting point because a lot of businesses are like you know we have some clients that have a thousand dollars a month to spend on ads and other ones that have a hundred dollars a month to spend on ads, but it just depends on the results that they feel like are worth that ad spend. It's such it's such a grey area for most people though, isn't it, Jess? I mean, yeah. it really is something that we hear about, we hear people talking about it, but it, it's such a grey area to know what the right thing to do is. And I suspect a lot of businesses, and we're, we're the same right here in studio, we think that organic growth coming from just doing the right thing and posting will be enough. But you're saying that today... Yeah you really have to get outside that and it is sort of almost a, almost demands that we spend some cash to actually attract an audience. Is that right? Yeah, unless unless you're promoting it in other ways. Like, for example, if you're very active on promoting it um, through, you know, these interviews saying people, you know, jump on our Facebook page afterwards and you can, you know, recap from what you missed out on, those kind of things with you actively promoting that will increase your reach. But if you're just relying on a post that you've made to be – seen by the people that follow you, it is on average 6% of your audience that will actually see that. And that's because you, you know, as an individual follow so many accounts that, you know, it's impossible to be able to see all of that content 
in, let's say, a day, day by day basis. So Facebook distributes that priority reach to accounts that you've actually engaged in. So if you have, you know, a competition that you run and and it goes ballistic and you pick up, you know, 5,000 followers because of the competition, you have about a two-week window to actually re-engage those people to be able to continue seeing your posts show up. But you'll notice that if you're scrolling through your Facebook or Instagram, the posts that you're seeing in priority are the ones that you're actually engaging in most. So it's our job as advertisers to engage people. And if you can get your audience reach organically over 6%, then that's incredible. We, we started working with a client and we increased it from 5% to 20% in three months, but that was through really active promotions of competitions and, you know, staff telling customers to jump on and follow us, things like that. A lot of touch points to help promote it, but if otherwise you're just relying on organic reach. I think the best way I've been able to find to, to explain it is like, let's say, for example, you set up a website and you fill it with beautiful content and you just continue to update it, the chances of someone stumbling across your website are so slim. But when you set up Google AdWords to send people to your website, all of a sudden your traffic is, you know, increased by tenfold. It's almost like that with Facebook and Instagram as well. If someone says, jump on this page and give it a follow and you, you know, land on that page and it looks amazing and you give it a follow, that's that's great. But the chance of that happening organically, are usually pretty slim. Jess, you're still very young in your journey as a let's call it an entrepreneur or a business person. Yeah. How did how did you handle the voice of doubt? Because you're you're saying in the studio before we started recording that you are heading overseas soon to look at international opportunities and funding. How how have you handled that voice of doubt where suddenly you were doing this thing as something you enjoyed? Now you're being paid. Now you've got staff. Now you've got investors. Did you have those voices of doubt? And if you did, how did you handle them? I think that it was um, it was not much, not so much a voice of doubt, but more of a voice of reason, of reassurance that we're onto a good thing and that people were supporting us. And I am so fortunate to have the team behind me that I have. I've got an amazing network of mentors and staff that have helped guide me through every every start at every phase of this journey. Like by no means has it just been me individually having to do all this myself because it would be impossible if it was. But I mean, I've, I've got a lot of people that I've been able to tap into as mentors to be able to, you know, people that have already experienced this, that have already gone from having a company in Australia to flipping up to a company in America and being able to talk to those people and ask them how they even went through that process has been invaluable. Um, but there, in saying that, there has been a few times where um, I've questioned whether or not I thought I, as an individual, was ready for this huge step mm. because I think that um, on my kind of 12-month plan, I saw us growing more throughout Australia before we launched to the US. <laughs> so it's kind of been from a Newcastle business to going to Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane to now being you're going from Newcastle to the US. And I just had to be ready for it because the opportunity presented itself um, at a time that I wasn't expecting, but I think that's how life works. You never really can anticipate when things like that are going to come up. And for me, it was kind of uh, seize the moment. I'm never going to have an opportunity to be able to go and start up a company in the US and be backed by such credible investors that I was like, if I don't do it now, I'll regret it for the rest of my life. So it has been a huge step. I love that philosophy, Gaz. I just had to be ready for it. A lot of people would sit back and go, oh, maybe it's a bit too big right now. Maybe this, maybe that. But yeah. I've just got to be ready for it. Great attitude. Mm, yeah. Great attitude. Gold. <laughs> Jess, you were 
Sitting in a cafe, and of course you were the only person anywhere in the country who was taking photos of their food. This is way before it became cool to do so. (laughs) And suddenly somebody said, we'll pay you to do it. And then suddenly you had enough work to have to employ a photographer and so the business grew. So suddenly you've gone from being someone who's sitting in a cafe by themselves taking it, not by themselves, but on your, alone. (laughs) On my phone, taking photos. (laughs) And you're taking photos of your food and suddenly now you've got a business and now you're required to know and understand leadership. Where did, where did you learn your leadership skills? How did you pick them up? Because you've now got staff, it's successful. It's obviously so successful. Others are saying we want to invest. Mm. Where did you go to? Where did you pick these things up from? Um, I think a lot of it has been... Um, I think I'm in a very fortunate position where a lot of the people that work for me are the same age as me and I have been able to learn from the the leadership skills of past employees of almost what not to do. So unfortunately with the hospitality industry, a lot of um, my experience has been working for bosses that weren't that great and I was always mm. looked at it and thought to myself, you know, I never thought I'd, you know, one day be, a, be you know, the founder of a company or anything like that. I never really could foresee that. But when it did fall onto my shoulders to start up a business and I started having staff, it was more looking at how I was treated and other roles that I had where I didn't want to ever be that kind of boss. And I had the opportunity to almost start with a clean slate where I was like, this is, you know, what not to do. And then this is what to do. And it was just about growing through that journey, um, alongside my staff that are also a similar age to me. So it's almost like I never really like, you know, went to university and learned how to be the CEO of a company or anything like that. It was just seeing how other people wanted to, you know, have as a leadership role. And and I think that the flexibility that we have in our team and the fact that we are all great friends as well has just been such a fortunate thing. Like if you ask any of the people that work with me, it's it's an amazing dream job to be able to get paid to take photos of food and, you know, go to cafes and restaurants and be able to work for a company like Crave. And it's almost like we created those jobs that didn't exist before that really anyway. So mm. it's hard to, you know, tap into someone else to be like, hey, you run a similar business. How do you structure it? Yeah. It was just, it didn't exist. <laughs> Robbo's drooling because you're talking about a job that involves food, <laughs> let, let, alone, let alone the photos. Uh, He'd be like, yeah. yeah, mate, pass your iPhone over. Can don't, I eat this now? It's going I cold. I was going to say, don't suppose you need a soundo for a photo shoot, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we do We do a lot of videography now as well that requires audio, so maybe you can um, hit me oh, up give me a call. later on. Give me a call, I'm in. <laughs> Come along to a he, few he, photo he shoots. He does go well on the tooth. He knows his way, <laughs> yeah. he knows his way yeah. around a food trough. He can pay me in Tim Tams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, I, t- I took Tim Tams over to the States last time I went. So, oh. I guess that's something that I'm going to miss while I'm over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you um, convert any Yanks? I did. So, when I went over there, because I went over there for about 10 days just to start scoping out the market to see if, you know, the product that we created in Australia, I felt like could resonate with people in America as well. And every cafe and restaurant owner I met with afterwards, uh, having a chat with them about, you know, what business it's like for them, what platforms they use over there. I gave them a packet of Tim Tams, a caramel, a koala and a cherry ripe. And I awesome. won over a lot of hearts. <laughs> yeah. Told nice them about one. Tim Tams plans and how, how to do that. Jess, you mentioned it was hard to learn and you were learning as you went. Do you... 
Do you do you have any learning rituals for yourself? Are you an avid reader? Do you journal? Are you a podcaster? Like how how have you gone about learning yeah, the skills as, of business? I mean, what what are your rituals? As much as I hate to say it, I'm a podcaster. I think everyone likes to say that they are now these days. But um, one of the best podcasts I ever stumbled across is one called Masters of Scale, and it's by Reid Hoffman, oh, yeah. the guy that yeah. found on LinkedIn, Huge. and I. I, yeah, I love that podcast so much that I've listened to it and then I listen to it again and I listen to it again. So I think I'm on my third time listening to every single one of them because it's incredible. You get to have interviews with, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook and all these incredible people that have already gone through this journey and are quite open with their learnings about it as well, that being able to tap into, you know, that kind of information it just blows my mind. I love listening to things like that. But also, I'm, I'm very fortunate. My eldest brother, his name's Ben, he is an amazing person when it comes to startups and um, mentorship. He's worked with accelerator programs in Sydney um, for the last, you know, 15 years and has seen hundreds of startups succeed and fail, succeed and fail. So, any any bit of doubt that I ever had or information that I didn't know how to gain, you know, through a Google search or podcasts. And he's always been there to be able to ask those kind of questions to as well. So I would say for people that are starting to get into this and want to know how to go about it, if there's anyone in your circle that has ever Mm -hmm. worked in startup or ever, you know, experienced those kind of things, don't be scared to ask questions and ask for advice because it's the only way that you can help yourself not make those bigger mistakes by learning from other people's mistakes. There's another great podcast podcast as well. It's called the Mojo Radio Show and it's yes, awesome. Yes, that one. Oh, it's I listen to so it every good. day. <laughs> Actually, ben listen. Ben's, uh, Ben's an avid listener. Yeah, I think that's ben where knows. Ben learnt from, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah there you go. Good to, good to have you in the house, mate. Um, mm. Do you, <laughs> Jess, do you approach your day very intentionally? Like, is your day set up with what you want to do? How, how, how do you approach your day? Yeah, oh, that's a, that's a good question. I think that it depends on personality types. Personally, I um, am probably the least organised person, person that I've ever met. Um, I kind of <laughs> just have a philosophy of no matter how much you try and plan things out, it's going to change regardless. Like, for example, four months ago, I never would have thought that I was starting up a company in America. And if I had planned out the next six months of my life, a change like that would have been so huge that I probably wouldn't have been able to fathom it. But I have kind of a, a go with the flow, whatever happens, happens mindset. So day to day, my, my you know, usual job tasks and they change so dramatically that it's impossible to plan. I, I obviously you know, schedule meetings and try and like keep a little bit of organization in my life. But um, a lot of it is just like, it changes so frequently. Do you schedule, they call it deep work or deep thinking time, Jess? Is there a, a time in your day or your week where you just disconnect and sit and think about your own world and the world mm. of crave? Yeah, usually it's when I'm driving because I don't have the distractions of having to be on my emails and reply to messages and all of those kind of, you know, things that do distract you from that kind of deep thinking. But some really great advice I got was spend 80% on the business and 20% in the business. And that is almost sounded impossible when I first heard that. But I've been able to delegate a lot of my responsibilities where I was working in the business more than on the business. And now more than ever, I've been able to do things like, for example, apply for a pitching competition in Sydney Sydney that 
won me a seat in a, you know, incubator in San Francisco. If I was spending all my time working in the business, I never would have had the time to to ever do that. And those are the kind of things that progress the company more and more than, you know, working in the business ever could. So I think I've seen the importance of taking a step back and thinking about the bigger picture. And we have, you know, advisor meetings and um, team meetings frequently where we just all take a step back and assess what we've done and how we can, you know, continue to grow. Because if you just get lost in the day-to-day things, you never you never really actually do grow. You just get stuck at this kind of, um, you know, this uh, lull of, of being comfortable in what it is and never actually pushing yourself to have opportunities like go to America. Because you've done that. You've really pushed yourself and it's been quite an exponential growth for you mm. as a person, you as your leadership and yeah. the organisation. And you, I, I suspect people would hear you talk, Jess, and look at what you do and go, you're having a crack at it, you're getting after it, you're quite fearless. Is there anything that you do fear? Um, I, I think that the biggest thing on my mind right now that I'm scared about is that whether or not um, I'm ready to scale my my life to the level of let's say you go to I go to America and you know we raise a lot more money to be able to grow into a company the size of Uber. Am I personally ready to have that happen in my life when I feel like my life here in Australia is what it is right now and still mm. you know reasonably normal? Um, am I ready to have that kind of responsibility? I just have to figure that out as it goes. But that's the only sense of doubt or fear that I have at the moment is whether or not being 25 in the life that I love right now so much in Australia, am I ready to give that up to pursue, you know, being a company that is the size of hopefully one day like an Uber and Facebook and Instagram? Because those are the goals of the company, like to be able to grow into a global company where it is a household name. It's such an interesting predicament, isn't it? Because if you read a lot of autobiographies or biographies on people, Mm. there are those that have built their organisations and they were destined to do it. That's all they ever wanted to do it and they sacrificed everything for it. And in fact, at the end of their time, they write a book just to explain to their children and their wife and their friends why they were missing in action. And then there are others who get halfway through the journey and go, actually, this is not what it's all about. This is not making me happy. This is not fulfilling me. Yeah. So... It's a good, and I don't know the answer to it because it's a it's a depends question for each individual. And then you get the other Absolutely. guys, like an Elon Musk who gets halfway through it and I think he's at his third or fourth marriage and starts saying, actually, I wonder if this is right. Can can I do this differently? And mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's at the age of 25 to have that and to be able to say you have that as a fear and at least have that in your conscious and your unconscious, I suspect, yeah. It's really, um, it's really quite profound, Jeff. Well, I do surround myself with a lot of people that I see <clears throat> go through things like that. Like my advisor, one of my advisors is a guy called Justin Howells who founded a company called Camplify. And it's like the Airbnb for caravans. It's now across Australia and the UK. It's a huge company. And I've seen him grow that from startup to, you know, a scale up. And to be able to have those real conversations about the sacrifices that you have to make with doing that and, again, to be able to see um, through even or even listen to these podcasts, like, for example, the ones with Masters of Scale, to be able to see that these are just regular people that decided to prioritise turning their company into a global business and the kind of sacrifices that does come with that and whether or not, like you said, it's worth it. If we go to 
Masters of Scale. Now, that's hosted by Reid Hoffman, who's the brains and founder of LinkedIn. And he did an amazing show, which I've listened to a number of times, with Reid Hastings. Now, people may not know the name Reid Hastings, but they certainly will know the company he founded called Netflix. Yeah. And I quite often tell the story, Jess, about Reid Hastings being in the mid-'90s and he's still sending out DVDs in the mail to people. And he heard about a thing called the internet and he had the vision (laughs) to go, if the internet got to the home, it'd be all over for me. And perhaps that same conversation should have made its way to the boardroom of Blockbuster or Video Easy. So my question is, if you are a fan of Reid Hoffman and that show, if you are like me, you're a fan of Netflix, what can Jessica and or Crave see in five to ten years that you want to be a part of? Yeah, well, it's a great question and it's something that we ask ourselves in every meeting that we have is, you know, when it comes to thinking about the bigger vision of the app is if Crave becomes a global company, what does the world look like in five years' time? What kind of impact do we have on the world if if everybody is using this app? And for me, I think it's about... Um, creating something that has a positive impact in the hospitality industry rather than a negative. So, for example, just as a case study, like Uber Eats is a great product for the consumer, but for hospitality, a lot of companies, you know, suffer because of the, you know, huge, huge percentage of um, 35% of an order goes towards Uber Eats. And these hospitality businesses feel like they need to be on it, but they can't afford the margins. And for me, because I think I have hospitality background as well as the consumer side, I want to create a company that is as valuable for the hospitality businesses as it is to consumers. So I want to change the way that people discover food as being something that, you know, is now delivered to your door, bring people back into the businesses and help them to discover places they wouldn't have been able to find otherwise. So I think as long as Crave stands for a platform that is positive for both the hospitality industry as well as the consumer and the whole world is using it in five years' time, I want it to be something that has a positive impact on both sides. Do you know, this is such a profound conversation, Jess, and that comment you made is what does the world look like in five years' time or what does it look like in ten years' time? And I don't think enough leaders spend the time to put any deep work into that. And I saw this great example on the weekend, which I'm going to start to use. This guy wrote an article And he had a photo of this futuristic car and he said, within 20 years, you won't need a car. In fact, you're probably driving your last car now because in 20 years' time, it'll all be self-driving, self-navigating. You won't own a car. There'll just be these little things running around and you'll have no ownership. Then he showed a photo of uh, Fifth Avenue in New York and it was from the 1900. And it was a street full of horse-drawn carriages. And he said, spot the car. So when you zoom in, there's one car on it. By 1913, it was the same street and the photo had all cars and there was one horse. So just in 13 years. And then the photo that followed that was a shot of Uber with one of these things on the top of the car saying Uber are currently testing self-driving, self-navigating taxis. And it's kind of this full loop to say, you know what, it ain't that far away when this is already being tested. (laughs) And here's an example from 1913. Do you sometimes wonder what food will be in 10 years? I do. And I I think that um, 
it's so hard to be able to foresee what it will be. But I think if technology continues to go down the line it is right now with, you know, delivery apps becoming such a, a popular thing. Like, for example, when I was in San Francisco, there's like seven delivery apps over there that are just as big as Uber Eats. I couldn't believe it. I was like, they're all, they all really? do the exact same thing. Why are there so many of them? But yeah, and it's it's huge. There's there's a huge shift in people getting food delivered to their door instead of going into the hospitality businesses. So for me, if I was to be, you know, looking at those companies and the impact that it has on the industry, I want to be the antidote to that. I want us to take it back to, you know, having people going into the restaurants and actually experiencing it because for me as a foodie, the idea of getting food delivered to your door is something that I'd only ever do like, you know, very rarely if I if I was, you know, maybe hungover on a Sunday and didn't want to leave the house. But for people <laughs> to do that every single night and and not be going into these businesses to experience the customer service and the actual ambience of the place that these business owners invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into just to, you know, make the place be what it is, the food is then also an, another additional experience of that. It's like you're only experiencing one dimension of these amazing places and it will hurt the industry. And I can mm. see that it already is. And I don't want in five years' time that to be the norm is that you don't go out anymore and, and eat. You just get it delivered. <laughs> so I think that if we can be creating a product that, yeah, is, is the reverse of that, I hope that it has an impact on the hospitality businesses in a positive way where we don't go down that line where, you know, you don't go out and eat with friends anymore. You just deliver, <laughs> get the food delivered to your door. Jess, you, one of the first people you employed when you got your first paid gig was a photographer because yes. you understood that <laughs> photography was going to be a big part of what you did. I've just got a question on, and I, I call it visual literacy. It just seems to me that consumers are becoming a lot more visually literate. And by that, I mean, we have an expectation that things will look beautiful. They'll be shot nicely. Packaging will be beautiful. Even if you're paying a nominal amount like the cheaper end, you want it to be packaged nicely. And the standards of packaging and presentation seem to be getting higher. Yeah. In your business in media and entrepreneur are you, is that fair? Do you think people are having an expectation of things wanting to look better, better? Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that you, we see those, those trends happening from, I mean, especially platforms like Instagram where they are so visual. And if you're a company now that's popped up and you don't have your branding on point, your photography on point, it's almost like people like straight away identify you as a, a company that's, you know, not professional or not mm. like a, a bigger company, whereas you could be the smallest startup in the whole world. And as long as you've invested in some great branding and some great packaging and an, and an Instagram presence that looks professional, nobody has any idea otherwise. So it is it's almost like we're becoming quite a snobby generation of people that see, see those, um, you know, in, initial things like, for example, like you said, the photography and the branding and packaging, and you make a judgment so quickly on the professionalism of a company because of that. But I think it's nice to have the bar set high, to have, you know, products that are coming out into the market and you look at them and you think, wow, what, a, what, what beautiful packaging, I want yeah. to buy that. But, yeah. but then again, if you then actually use a product and it's not that great, but the packaging is really good, that's, that's dependent on whether or not you'd actually ever repurpose <laughs> it again. So You've had a pretty amazing trajectory and who knows where this thing is headed in the next couple of years. Mm. When you think back through... And it seems like you're a person who takes takes good advice 
takes good tips. You are humble enough to know that there are others around you who can share and help you. Tell me the best piece of advice that you you think about and call upon daily in the back of your mind. Somebody said or did something that was a profound lesson and made a difference and you call upon it on a regular basis. Do you have one? Um, the, the one that comes to mind is that I was, <clears throat> I was really nervous for a pitch that I was doing in Sydney probably about five months ago. I was actually pitching live on Sky News. I had like 60 seconds to do it. It was insane. And my mum I saw, I was, saw it, Jess. <laughs> yeah, oh, my goodness. That took like <laughs> 10 years off my life. Um, but <laughs> mum was listening to me pitch, as, as she does, and offering advice on what to say and how to say it. At the end of all of these nerves and stress that I had, she said, you know, people are going to remember how you made them feel. They're not going to remember what you said. They're going to remember mm-hmm. how you made them feel. And that translates into everything you do in business. They're not going to remember the things that you said in meetings, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And I think that's where I've tried to always remember that when I do any any business with anyone, whether it's my staff, whether it's new clients coming on board or just anything in general networking, I always try and remember that being human is what people will remember and how you made them feel as an individual rather than what you said. So I think that's something that's really stuck with me, yeah. Tis mums know, don't they? <laughs> they do. They always do. But it's funny, I'd, I'd have to say, just wrapping this up, I think that you've made Robbo feel very hungry. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, it's lunchtime. It's always lunchtime for you. Um, Jess, I, I think you're an incredible young entrepreneur. I think the, I love the fact that you do take the time to think individually and with your team, you are looking into the future at not just your business, but also the industry and Mm. our lifestyle and how you can be of service to others for the greater good, which in turn will help reward you, the company and your team. It's, um, it really is great. And I think you have a very philosophical approach to it that I think a lot of our listeners will find very inspiring. So uh, where, where do, where do people go to find out more about Crave, you, the work, where's the best hub? Yeah, I would say definitely download the app. We send out push notifications regularly about updates around that. But also if you're on Instagram, give us a follow through Crave Newcastle because that's kind of the baby where it all started. So you'll be able to see a lot of progression through that as well. But um, yeah, those, those two main platforms, either the Instagram or download the app. So that's where you go if you crave more information. Is that right? Absolutely. Oh, I, I like what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get some. We're going to some writers in the studio. We're trying to impress um, here, guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you want <Jess>. more? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. Tell him that. More beers. More than nothing. Um, <laughs> Jess, if you were starting out again, and say you had two or three clients. It was starting to work. You had your photographer and you could sense this was going to be a thing. If there was one bit of information you wish you'd have known back then when you were starting out and had a little bit of momentum, what do you wish you'd have known? Um, I think that if I had have known that it would ever be what it is to, to just it, be able to embrace every opportunity as it came um, wholeheartedly with whatever happens, happens, then like sooner rather than just now. I think things could have progressed even faster than they already have. But I think there has been times where I, I have unfortunately felt comfortable with with where things were and, 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 you know, been a bit scared of change. So I think if I had of earlier 
been able to embrace that. Who knows? Maybe we'd already be in the US. <laughs> so you're saying you, you wish you'd have known to embrace change more, to go to have a crack at it and go with the flow a bit more? Yeah, I think that um, it's something that was hard to kind of let my guard down and, and let it become what it has now become because you do get complacent in life. And, you know, for example, I, I've lived in Newcastle my entire life and the idea of having to pack up my life and move to America was a huge, huge decision to make as, you know, as an individual and as someone that, you know, is the the founder of two companies that one is based in Newcastle and one is going global. So that internal decision was huge for me. And I wish that I maybe had the ability to be able to just take a step back throughout this whole time and just say, you know, if this is what the company needs me to do and where I need to be, then just embrace it. But yeah, I think that it's nothing that you can ever teach yourself. It has to be something you experience along the way because you just can't ever foresee things like that happening. Well, I think this is great. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you, Jess. We we know how much you've got on your plate. Uh, Literally. Squeeze. (laughs) No, I get literally on my phone. Oh, you guys are just hot hot with the puns today. Oh, that that was not intentional. That was just, you know, I'm just bubbling over with creativity. It just popped out. There it was. Yeah. No, it's a pleasure to be on the show. I can't wait to, can't wait to see, you know, listen back on this in like even, even a year's time and see where we are in 12 months. Yeah. Thanks, Jess. The Mojo Radio Show. Speaking of food. (laughs) I discovered on the weekend this fantastic restaurant that's near us and it's an Afghan restaurant. And can I just say, Afghan, Afghan, Afghan Afghan curries. Mate, I tell you what. There's too too many lines in that. I can leave that alone. Even better than Indian food. They're so good. It was great. I'm going back for sure. So there you go. Afghan. If you get a, got an Afghan restaurant near, go try it. But, 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 but don't touch your dial because you've got a treat coming up with a batch of real big stars. The Mojo Radio Show. Before we go any further, I actually got uh, an email from our OH&S department. Right. Do we have one of those? <laughs> Formerly known as Common Sense Department, is that what you mean? Yeah. That's them. Yes. <laughs> now, we don't, we don't pay them or anything, but right. uh, they've sent me an email saying that in the interests of safety within the studio, mm. could you please ask Robbo to wear shoes? No. <laughs> <laughs> What's the story with this barefoot thing? Well, do you know what? I, st- I just grew up loving not wearing shoes, but I actually discovered something the other day that makes it all make sense. There's, there actually is a thing called grounding. Now, I don't know how this works for you living on a farm because I'm sure Mr. Tiger Snake and Tiger Snake and Mr. Redbelly Black would like to get their fangs into your little toes. And Mr. Cowpoo. Yeah, Mr. Cowpoo. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Cowpoo Patty. But but there actually Patty. is a s- <laughs> Patty. <laughs> Patty. No, Patty. There actually is a science behind not wearing shoes and it's a thing called grounding and what it does is it when you have your feet on the ground, it allows you to absorb large amounts of negative electrons through the soles of your feet, and it gets your body at the same negatively charged electrical potential as the Earth. Now, sounds really scientific and stupid, but here's some of the benefits that science has proved so far. Uh, when we're outside and barefoot, we're actually protecting ourselves from chronic stress, inflammation, poor sleep, and pain, including a whole bunch of others that well, I'll post the link to this and you can read it yourself, but they're the main ones. So 
wearing no shoes is actually good for you. So, Mr. Used to be Common Sense Department, I'm going to send you this article. You need to read it. You need to change your rules. Well, it's, and the thing is, uh, it's a thing because mm. this has been talked about. I know Ben Greenfield, who runs a very popular podcast, and he, he's probably one of the, next to Rob Wolf, he's probably one of the more scientific guys who runs a degree of common sense, but also huge science behind these things. And he talks about it often where he goes traveling. And the first thing he'll do is he'll arrive in a different city during the day. He'll take his shoes off and go walking in the park and do a workout to try and acclimatize himself and so on. So he is a big one for grounding. Apparently there is science behind it. I can't say that you kind of it's it's one of those things where you have to kind of trust it because to go outside, walk on the grass or the dirt or the pebbles, and even even walking on cement can help. You're not really going to notice any difference, but there is science behind it. It's not going to hurt. Yeah, and you know the other thing that occurs to me is we talk a lot on the show about being in the moment and putting your hand in the water or a mate of mine that used to play footy with used to rub dirt between his hands. There's nothing like the middle of summer in the late afternoon when it's cool, walking outside on the grass in the shade of a tree and your feet feel the grass under your feet and you just go, it's summer, I'm relaxed, I'm in the moment, blah, blah, blah. I think besides anything else, there's just that. I think that sums it up, blah, blah, blah. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. We spoke at the start of the show about people who get in touch. Now, we had Steph a couple of months ago who met me at a gig I was doing in the Gold Coast who walked up, gave me her story and said, I want to be in your show. And I went, sure. I get an email from Chris Mitchell. Now, Chris is... It's a fascinating backstory with the fact that he was suffering from debilitating diseases before he was even born. And he has dealt with hardship since the minute he was born. And this is a guy who was not supposed to even speak. There's a guy who's not supposed to be able to walk, yet he is now doing both and achieving some amazing things. He's actually blind. And Chris got in touch with us through Twitter and said, you follow our account. Thank you, Hugh. Uh, I'd like to come on your program. So we went, heck, why not? So Chris Mitchell, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Well, thank you very much. Now, you have got an extraordinary backstory. Tell us from a very early age, tell us about the challenges you faced, Chris. When I was born uh, many, many, many years ago, I came into the world with complications caused by the rebellion syndrome, which is pretty much unheard of today. But the rebellion syndrome caused multiple birth defects for me, including a constricted aorta of my heart and visual disabilities or difficulties, I should say. The constricted aorta was a blood flow issue, which caused a heart condition since day one of my life. And I never let any of these obstacles stop me from achieving anything I wanted to do in my life. When I was young, even though I had a constricted aorta, I was active. I ran with my peers, not as fast as they did, not even as fast as the younger children in my neighborhood, but I did get out there and run. I also climbed trees and I rode a bicycle. Riding a bicycle was really amazing because I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I was born with visual disabilities. My vision is 2200 in my left eye, 2300 in my right eye. I cannot, and I've never been able to read out of my right eye, 
And my left eye is primarily the one I used to see and, and figure out what's going on around me. I don't, I don't even have depth perception, which is really challenging. But I did ride a bicycle. And I did the other things kids did. When I, when I was at the age of 16, my dad took me out for a drive in his car. In his car, it was a 1980 Thunderbird. And it's a beautiful car. It was his prized possession. So there's Park, 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 Missouri, here in the States. And we went to Park, Set Park, and it had a lot of hills. And at the edge of the park leads into one of the rivers that are near St. Louis. So he told me to drive, and he told me, okay, just do what I tell you to do. You'll be fine. So he told me, put on the gas, and I did. He told me to turn, and I did. And he told me, okay, we're done driving. Put on the brake, which I did, and get out of the car and change seats, and I'll drive home. So I got out of the car. And the car started to roll. Dad forgot to tell me to put it in park. So we almost watched the Thunderbird go into the river as he frantically trying to hop over the console in the center of the car to get over to the driver's side and stop the car. So that was about the only thing I've done. When I was younger, I also was allowed to fly my uncle's private plane. It was fun until we tried landing. Another plane cut in front of us and scared the daylights out of me. But I did fly a plane. Now, throughout my childhood, I also had behavior issues as I grew up. ADHD, impulsive behavior, and wound me up being suspended from school quite frequently. In fact, I got expelled from elementary school at second grade and had to go to another elementary school. Then in, June, in high school, excuse me, I was expelled from high school. And I wound up being in a special education program for kids with behavior problems. But I earned the privilege to come back to my high school and graduate with my senior class. Now, all these things that happened to me in my life when I was younger prepared me for the biggest challenge of my life. So, Chris, on the communication that I've seen from you, it says never allow anyone or anything to define who you are. Hashtag define yourself. At some point, did you let others define you? Maybe, maybe a little bit. I did have some issues in, in the relationship with my father, who um, at times was a little bit verbally abusive. But it, more in my case was people wanting to uh, set expectations because of my disability that, oh, you can't do that because you're disabled, or that's not something that's available for you because of your disability, or you'll have to use large print books because you're disabled. And I didn't like that. I figured the world's not going to adapt to me. I got to adapt to it. So I pretty much had the attitude, I'm not going to let anyone or anything define who I am. I'm going to define myself and the world can deal with that. Your insurance company, you said, had given up on you, but you didn't give up on yourself. What, what keeps Chris going? Well, like I said, the insurance company, when I was not making a lot of progress in my physical therapy, was pretty much said, you're not making any progress. We're not going to pay for this anymore. What kept me going was I wanted to get my life back. I was engaged. I was going to get married. I did not want my wife to have to take care of me. I did not want to be in a long-term care facility. I wanted my life back. I wanted to show the world there was more to me than a disability. And this setback in my life, yes, it was a setback, was not going to stop me from achieving anything I wanted to do in my life. That's the way I've been since day one of my life, and that's the way I'm going to be until they uh, plant me six feet under. You said on July 25, 
2018, you wrote, 16 years ago this morning was the day I walked without the assistance of mobility equipment before surviving a stroke to my spinal cord. As I sit and reflect on that life-changing event, I am recalling how the stroke changed my life, what I have regained. What are you grateful for, Chris? I am grateful for the fact that I did get to come home. I did get to marry my dream girl. We are ha- we have celebrated 15 years of marriage. I have to do the math all the time because it's one year after my stroke and I have to <laughs> redo the math. But I'm happy and grateful that we are together, that I'm able to take care of myself, to feed myself, to do all the things that I want to do. While I was in a rehab hospital, I was on the first floor. On the third floor were people in prolonged vegetated states that will never wake up and that will die eventually. I am Mm. very grateful that I was not one of those people because I know things could have been a lot worse for me during that surgery. Do you know something that I, I thought was terrific? Chris, I want to ask you about you. One of the goals you had for the future was to be a corporate speaker or to be a motivational speaker. So you went to Toastmasters. In fact, you joined a number of Toastmasters organizations. But what was interesting, Chris, is you went to Toastmasters and you told the people in the room what you were going to do and you asked those people for help. And you told them what you were going to need, what you were going to need from them and how they may assist you to be a speaker. And it was almost quite direct. You were very clear about what you needed and you had no problem asking for it. How did you find people responded when you were very clear on the expectations of what you required from them? I don't know how it is in other countries. I'm here in America. And over the years, over the last 20, 30 years, we've become more aware of what we call the Americans with Disabilities Act, which has made American citizens more aware of disabled people. They're no longer pushed off to one side. And people here in the States are very willing to help. Often, they don't know how to ask. They don't want to ask a question because they feel it might be rude to say, how can I help you with your disability? And granted, there's some disabled people who will get very rude if you ask, ask them or offer them help. So primarily when I do tell people pretty directly what I need and how they can help me, they're very responsive, mainly because I'm upfront with them, I'm honest with them, I let them know what I need help with, but yet they're still amazed at how much I can do that they probably are thinking, I don't know if I could have done that if I was in his situation. How do you judge your success, Chris? Because you've got an amazing backstory and you've got a lot of things you still want to do and people you want to help. How does, how does Chris measure your own success? You know, a lot of people like to look at success and say, well, that person's doing this. I need to be doing that same thing. And, and one thing I've learned and discovered in life, you don't want to measure yourself up against somebody else because you're never going to win that game. What you have to do is become better than the person you were the day before. And that's what I measure my success by. Am I doing more than what I was doing a day ago, a week ago, a year ago? And if I am, and that is success to me. If we could look into your soul, into the, into the spirit of you when things aren't going your way, because you've been through an enormous amount and I suspect there are still days where things don't go to plan. If we looked into, Chris, on those days where it's not going well for you, 
what would we see or what would we hear? Yes, there are days that things are not going the way I wanted them to. There are days that I have a little bit more struggle with mobility than others. Part of that is because I've reached the ripe old age of old age. <laughs> but <laughs> that happens. Everyone goes through that. But I just look at signs and say, look, I, I, I've been knocked down harder. I was in a hospital bed, unable to move, turn myself, even feed myself. I, I, there's so much I've overcome. I can overcome whatever is setting me back today. I've done it before, and I can do it again. So, Chris, when, um, when people ask to find out more about you, what, what's your hub? Where do you send people to learn more about you, your journey, and what you're up to? Well, basically, that's my website, which is I am. Chris Mitchell. I is an inspirational, M is a motivational, chrismitchell.com. I am chrismitchell.com. Well, Chris, we, we like people who walk the talk and you approached us through Twitter and said, hey, listen, here's my story. If you're ever looking for someone to talk to, I'd be happy to come on the show. We've done that. We've ticked the box. And I've got to say, man, it's a real privilege talking with you. I admire your courage of what you've been through, and I, I really acknowledge the, the desire you've got to continue the journey to help people and to be of service to others. So, uh, mate, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on our little program. It's been, it's been great. Well, thank you very much for having me, and uh, like I said, stop by my website anytime. The Mojo Radio Show. The one question I've got for all of us, me, you, and everybody listening is, based on what Chris just talked about... <laughs> What excuses have you got? <laughs> not many. <laughs> what excuses have you got to not take care of business in any aspect of your world? In fact, who's saying that? Who's actually saying that? Uh, Backman Turner Overdrive. Yeah. All right.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.